0: Well, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 112 this morning, so I invite you to open your Bibles there. Psalm 112, it's actually connected to Psalm 111, and so when we begin reading in a moment, we're going to start with Psalm 11, verse 10. And then enter into Psalm 112. Hope you brought your Bible with you. If you can open it or turn it on or whatever it is that you do these days. And uh, before we go any further, please join me in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who many years ago entered Jerusalem riding on a colt and was honored with shouts of Hosanna. Lord, we worship and honor you this morning with our praise, considering what you went through that week in particular, when you died such an agonizing death, but then rose from the grave three days later, these acts of yours comprise the gospel, the gospel which is precious to us because it is, it's the message through which we have believed and received eternal life. Trusting in you, Jesus, in your death and resurrection for the very salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Father, for loving us enough to send your one and only Son. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us enough to die for us. And we thank you, precious Holy Spirit, our Comforter, who has taken the work of Christ and applied it to our hearts here in the 21st century. All praise to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we ask once again that you would open the eyes of our hearts to grasp the truth of your Word, that it may... Help us in our walk with you so that we can glorify you in the lives that you've given us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm beginning with Psalm 111 at verse 10, reading into Psalm 112. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Praise the Lord! Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This psalm is... A wisdom psalm, that's usually how it's designated. And that means it's for our instruction, it's to tell us how to live. It's a wisdom psalm, it's a wisdom poem about the ideal man. It's actually the counterpart to Proverbs 31, which is the wisdom poem of the ideal woman. It's similar also in that it is an alphabet Poem Or an acrostic. Both Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are alphabet psalms. That means they start with a word that begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then each succeeding line begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Just like Proverbs 31. So it's constructed that way for a purpose. Of course, you know, we read English. So we might miss that. But the point there is that it has been carefully constructed. And like I said, it's a poem about the ideal man. Now, I can read Proverbs 31 with great benefit. And so, ladies, this is for you too. It's not just for men, but it has a special focus on men. It's carefully composed. And it starts with A, ends with Z, relatively speaking giving us the entire picture of what is to comprise the ideal man. This is what I want to be when I grow up. You say, well, you better get started. (laughs) You haven't got much time. Look again, if you will, at the last verse of, yeah, the, the first line of the last verse of Psalm 111. I think they're, oh, yeah, they're going to put it up there. Great, good. And the last verse of Psalm 111 and the first verse of Psalm 112, you can see how they hang together. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then Psalm 112, verse 1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Now, they're hooked together, as I said. There are other considerations as to why they should be read together, but we don't have to get into that. Uh, But in order to benefit from Psalm 112, these two verses, the last one of Psalm 111 and the first verse of chapter uh, of Psalm 112, they, they, they highlight three kind of large categories or themes that we need to look into a little bit more carefully so we can benefit from Psalm 112. Those three big themes you might see, I put them in bold, I think I did. Uh, they're wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and that word blessed. Wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and blessed. So this sermon has got two parts In the first part, it's going to be a little topical. We're going to talk about those three big themes, wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and blessed. And in the second part, we'll spend a little bit of time looking at Psalm 112 itself. So first of all, let's look at wisdom. What is wisdom? I said this is a wisdom psalm. And wisdom is kind of a broad word. It can be defined and has been defined in many different ways. But here's one that I favor. A nice little definition of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing the world as God sees it and acting accordingly. Wisdom is seeing the world as God sees it and then acting accordingly. See, God created the world. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He created the world so he knows how it works. But we didn't create the world, and we're not all-powerful, and we're not all-knowing. And we need to know how it works, how He set things up, how things operate. So we need wisdom. We need to see the world as God sees it so that we can act accordingly. But it's not so easy. It's not so easy, is it? It's because the journey of life has a lot of twists and turns. It's not just one straight path has a lot of curves. And every stage of life, when you're in it, is tough. Take childhood, for instance. It's hard to be a little kid. That's why they cry all the time. (laughs) But what about youth? Maybe you don't cry as much, but it's tough to be a middle schooler. Or coming of age. Trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life. Single life. Married life. Raising kids, middle age, old age, approaching death. Every station of life has its unique challenges, don't they? And throughout our lives, we face challenges. Now, if I could go back to junior high school, I think I'd do a much better job handling my braces and my pimples and my big nose than I did. Those were big issues for me. But I can't go back. I think, man, it's so easy. Go back to kids have it so easy. Well, not not when you're a kid, you don't have it easy. And now I'm at a place where I have different kinds of challenges. It's sometimes good to think back what was it like when I was a child? What was it like when I was a young man? What was it like when I was first married? Because people are facing these kinds of challenges, and some of them are very big, like career decisions or whom shall I marry? Or, probably, a better question is, who can I find that would possibly marry me? Um, and all those things require wisdom. I, I remember at that time, I felt like marriage was somehow in my life. It was, I felt like it was about to happen, but I had no idea. I was, I just pray every day, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Just help me to. Have wisdom. I prayed that continually. And then one day I opened up my eyes and there was Clara. And God had just uh, brought her to me. And that solved one big problem. But it opened up a whole lot of others. <laughs> all of it requires wisdom. How to think. How to act. We all need wisdom. And it's not a matter of IQ. It's not a question of your grade point average or your SAT scores. Because that has to do with knowledge. It's not knowledge, but wisdom that is the principal thing. Wisdom is what puts knowledge to use properly. Knowledge without wisdom doesn't profit and actually can be very dangerous. So where can wisdom be found? Well, even people in the ancient world, there was a wisdom literature tradition that the Egyptians had and other ancient peoples had and and. They had this idea that wisdom came from observing the world. And somehow if we can observe how things work, we can gain a heart of wisdom. And that's certainly part of it. But when it comes to where wisdom could be found, where we locate the skills for handling life, for navigating its pathways, it takes a little bit more than that. Tucked away in the book of Job, chapter 28, which actually is also of the genre of wisdom literature, believe it or not. In the book of Job, chapter 28, there's a fascinating little discussion of where wisdom is to be found. We won't turn there, but I'll just refer to it. It's like a survey is being taken. Where is wisdom to be found? And the answers come back. It's not found in the land of the living. The realm of death says we heard a rumor of it. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. From where then does wisdom come? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. So you got this little survey. Where can wisdom be found? We've surveyed life and death. The land, the sea, the air. In other words, everything there is to survey. And the result of it is, we have no idea. But then at the end of the passage comes the answer. God understands the way to it. And He knows its place. And He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. The fear of the Lord. So there's a connection between the fear of the Lord and this thing we call wisdom. What that tells us is wisdom doesn't come just from observing the world, but from understanding the world from God's point of view and then living in accordance with it. That word Lord there is really that word Name Yahweh, how God revealed himself to Moses. It's God's covenantal name, and it implies a covenant relationship. So the fear of the Lord has to do with being in relationship with God, in covenant with Him. And when you're in relationship with Him, ah, you have the key to wisdom. So here in Job, the connection is made. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. So it brings us to the second big theme, if you will, the fear of the Lord. Now, I think the term itself uh, sounds a little off-putting, doesn't it? I think I was about 10 or 11 years old when I first heard this phrase, the fear of the Lord. I was reading a book about German people living in the 1700s, and they were referred to as being a God-fearing people. And I remember I didn't like the phrase. There are plenty of things to be afraid of. Please, let's not add God into the mix. And then as a teenager, a few years later, I heard my older friend Ed say how much he hated that phrase. Fear of God. (laughs) Should be love of God, people talk about. Not fear of God. Now, Ed was an authority on rock and roll, so I figured he knew what he was talking about. And so I said, yeah, love of God, not fear of God, I think. Pretty common, I suspect. Terms just about gone out of use. Vestige of a almost forgotten Puritan past. And most people would say good riddance. But, of course, I'm, I'm here this morning to argue that not only the term should be revived in our speech, but that the very idea that it contains should soak into our hearts and minds and it should be a reality for us that far from being put off by it should fill us with joy and wonder, awe and even delight because the scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, the writer says, let's hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep the commandments. So the beginning and the end and everything in between in life has to do with the fear of the Lord. And I, I have up here on the uh, on the uh, speaker a uh, uh, number of copies of a paper that I wrote on the fear of the Lord that goes into a little bit more detail and you're free to take one afterwards. I don't want to forget to mention that. All right, fear of the Lord. Now part of the difficulty with the term is That it can be used, the idea can be used in two different contexts, two different perspectives. First of all, it can refer to the terror that unrepentant and unpardoned sinners have when facing the living God, realizing that they deserve His wrath. Jonathan Edwards had this in mind when he preached his famous sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, some people just dismiss this thinking that Edwards must have been an angry man, but that that wasn't the case at all. It wasn't true of Edwards, and it wasn't true of Jesus, who said much more strongly than Edwards, I might add. He said, I tell you, my friends, this is Luke 12, 5, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear, Fear Him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. In Hebrews it says, our God is a consuming fire. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those are difficult words for modern ears to hear. And I can imagine some perhaps even here saying, Well, that's not the kind of God I believe in. I've heard people say that. I understand that. But A.W. Tozer wisely wrote, he said, we can hold a correct view of truth only by daring to believe everything God has said about himself. It's a grave responsibility that a man takes upon himself when he seeks to edit out of God's self-revelation such features as he, in his ignorance, deems objectionable that was a hard saying of Jesus that we just read from Luke but you must remember Jesus was the one who willingly offered himself on the cross why for the express purpose of saving sinners like you and me from the justified wrath of God so he has some standing in this discussion Would you not agree? We can be forgiven, in other words, through believing in Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to tell you, you can have your sins forgiven. It is received as a gift, a free gift. All you must do is turn away from your life of rebellion against God, turn toward Jesus, believe that He died for your sins, And rose from the grave. And the Bible tells us we're saved on that basis of believing the gospel. It is so simple a child can believe it. But it's so deep and profound that, well, it's for all of us. And when we come to believe in Jesus, the fear of the Lord then gets transformed into something beautiful. And this is the second way that the fear of the Lord is used in Scripture. When the expression fear of the Lord is used with respect to the Christian believer, there's a tremendous difference. The terror of final judgment is no longer in view. Because for the Christian, Jesus has himself faced and suffered the terror of judgment for us as our substitute. And so now there is no, no terror, no no fear, no, no torment, because Jesus took it all himself. I always wondered, uh, when I was first a Christian, I, I heard about how Socrates drank the hemlock and died with a few glib words of philosophy. And when Jesus was facing death, how he cried and sweat, as it were, drops of blood and prayed fervently. And, Why did Socrates face it without much fear? And Jesus seemed to be so stricken by the thought. It's because Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what he was facing. And when he did that for us, he relieved us of the fear of torment. Perfect love casts out fear. The perfect love of God as he gave his son Jesus. The perfect love of God as Jesus gave his life. That's what casts out fear when we realize this and realize that our greatest problem has already been solved. ah, The wrath of God is no longer anything we need fear. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the fear of the Lord still has an important place in the life of a believer. It's actually the foundation of our relationship with God. Sinclair Ferguson wrote the following. He said, true fear of God almost defines definition because it's really a synonym for the heartfelt worship of God, for who He is, and for what He is. A sense that His opinion about my life is the only thing that really matters. To someone who fears God, His fatherly approval means everything, and the loss of it is the greatest of all griefs. To fear God is to have a heart that is sensitive both to His Godness, And his graciousness. So this means the fear of God is relational. But it doesn't mean a flippant familiarity with God. It's the Lord after all that we're dealing with. Not the man upstairs. Or any of those silly modern phrases that people use. In the C.S. Lewis Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe the children are awaiting the arrival of Aslan Right? he represents Jesus but when Susan learns that Aslan was a lion she said oh I thought he was a man is he quite safe Mr. Beaver answered her safe who said anything about safe of course he's not safe but he's good He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. There's a big difference. All right, we've talked about wisdom. Talked about the fear of the Lord. They are connected. What about this other phrase, this other word? Blessed, blessed, blessed. It's the first word of our psalm. Blessed is the man. It's an important word. It's a word we see often In Scripture, often in the Psalms, what does it mean? It's often translated happiness, and that gets at it sort of. Happiness is the universal human pursuit. It's what we're all after. It's why you do the things you do and don't do the things that you don't do is because you hope it's somehow going to land you in happiness. It's what we're all after. Even if we're seeking something else, we're always seeking that something else With happiness as our ultimate goal. But blessed means more than happiness. More than the momentariness of happiness. It means to be blissfully happy over the long haul. It's a state of well-being. A sense of satisfaction, of contentment. It's actually being in a state of grace that you never fall out of. It's not fleeting but it is enduring happiness of the highest degree. Kids, it's, it's kind of like Christmas morning every morning and afternoon and evening. Now I like Christmas morning. I can remember when I was a kid how excited I was at Christmas morning. My sisters and I'd get up at 5.30, then 4.30, then 3.30 in the morning to, you know, my parents let us do that. But for me, the happiest day was the last day of school the first day of summer no more pencils no more books no more teachers dirty looks oh, man the last day of school was such a happy day an endless summer the worst curse was to have to go to summer school oh. <laughs> And then when I was a little boy, I saw some signs that said Vacation Bible School. And I was appalled. <laughs> Go to school in the summer in the Bible? Oh, no. I wasn't a Christian, obviously. I had no fear of the Lord. All right. Well, maybe it's a little different for you, but that kind of feeling going on and on, that's what it means to be blessed. It means to be envied. It means to have life along with satisfaction and fulfillment and significance and all of that stuff all rolled into one and it never ends. And to carry the biblical idea a little bit further, this idea of blessedness goes along with holiness. I know that sounds a little odd, but what it means is that God is involved in it. God is the focus of it. Blessedness means total joy in the presence of a completely loving and accepting God. And it goes on and on and on. Does that sound good? Amen. All right, with all this as a background now, let's look at Psalm 112. The blessed man of Psalm 112. Psalm 112, verse 1. The very first line, we could call it line A, says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, the next line, who greatly delights in his commandments. Do you see that? Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Oh, good, we have that underlined. And who greatly delights in his commandment. Notice what I have underlined. It's the first verse to the psalm. And it's the key to the entire psalm. Keep it up there, please. This is poetry. We need to understand that the chief characteristic of Hebrew poetry is something called parallelism. You have two lines and they correspond. They are parallel. The second line is parallel to the first. They correspond. There's something in the first line that corresponds to the second. And in this particular verse... The one who fears the Lord is also the one who greatly delights in his commandments. The verbs are parallel. First line tells you something. The second line says it again and even more. So it's supposed to grab our attention here. Fear, greatly delight, you don't usually put them together. Wants to get our attention. We don't usually associate fear with delight, much less great delight. But that's exactly the point That the psalmist wants us to get. There's something about the commandments of the Lord that are delightful. Just like fearing the Lord doesn't sound like a good thing, but it really is. There's something about God's commandments. Now that has to do with His Word. That's what the commandment is. It's connected to the fear of the Lord. It's not apparent, the connection at first. But when you stop and think about it, there's really nothing more valuable that we have in this earth than the very words of God. It's His revelation. It's the light by which we walk. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It's food for our souls. We can't live without it. We have to be told this, but when we hear it, you know, that's true. How in the world will we ever know anything about Jesus Christ apart from the Bible? And of course, the Old Testament points toward Him. People in the New Testament reading the Old Testament understood that it talked about Jesus who is Himself our salvation. So the commandments, the Word of God, the Bible, the Torah, the instruction that brings wisdom also brings life. And when we fear the Lord, we will delight in the words of Scripture. Wait, not just delight, we will greatly delight. And this characterizes the blessed man. Have you noticed how the psalmist sometimes rhapsodize over the Word of God? You ever read Psalm 119? Oh, how I love your law! And it goes on and on in that vein. Wow. It's like the wise man of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scorners. But what does he do? Oh, he delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 19 is another psalm where you have all these phrases used about the Word of God that are virtual synonyms the commandment of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord. And then you have the fear of the Lord. In Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11, these are some of the most beautiful lines in all Scripture. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold. Much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb moreover by them is thy servant warned and in keeping of them there's great reward all this is about god's word it's more to be desired not just than gold but than much gold much fine gold it's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. My life has gotten rather boring in terms of what I eat now. The spicy foods I used to enjoy. I can't handle them anymore. So pretty much every morning I wake up and I make my oatmeal. Day after day. <laughs> week after week. Month after month. can understand how I got boring after a while. But I put honey on my oatmeal. Much fine honey. (laughs) Honey, we're out of honey. Again, I keep the bees working in their factories, I'll tell you. Well, the Word of God is even sweeter than that. So here's the question for you Do you love God's Word? You should. It's the chief characteristic of the blessed man, the blessed woman. And everything that follows, follows if this is true. If you fear the Lord and delight greatly in his commandments. Now, I grant you, you have to develop a taste for this. But when you begin to read God's word regularly and you pick up the data after a while, you start connecting the dots. You put them together and something called wisdom and understanding dawns in your heart. It's like the light goes on and you say, "Ah, oh, I see. It happens if over a lifetime you practice the regular reading and study of God's word. Please don't tell me. That you're a dedicated Christian and you pick up the Bible once in a while. Or even more foolishly think that, yeah, I've read it. I think I know what it says. I've got a working knowledge of Scripture. I know where Psalm 23 is. I can find some other things if I need them. Please, please, prepare yourself for the future. This is the key point. If this is operative in your life, if you truly love God's Word, the rest that is in this psalm, will inevitably follow. It will be yours. Not immediately, perhaps, but eventually. And when you come to the end of your life, you will see how blessed you are. Is it inconvenient to do this? Is your life very busy? Well, listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He said, The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly That they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions never come. You hear what I'm saying? If you have to eliminate something else, eliminate something else. Make sure that you read and study God's word. If you do, you will be the blessed man. And you will see now some of the things that follow. First of all... Blessed family. We talk about how important family is. This is where it starts. Look at verse 2. His offspring, his descendants, his children, will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Do you love your children? I know you do. But if you fear the Lord and greatly delight in his commandments, they will benefit They will be mighty in the land. They will make a difference. They will be significant. They will contribute to church and society. That's what the promise is here. And they themselves will be blessed. You know, the overwhelming number of people who become Christians, they were evangelized in their families. The overwhelming number of people who become Christians are those who had fathers and mothers who were genuine believers, who feared God and loved His Word. So if you want a blessed family, fear the Lord, greatly delight in His commandments. Secondly, another blessing, blessed wealth. Wealth and riches are in His house. Verse 3. It's not a promise of luxury. The culture in which this was written was an agrarian culture. They were subsistence farmers, To be wealthy meant you had a good harvest. It meant you had enough food for your household and some left over to give to others. And so by that standard, everybody here would be considered wealthy. The blessed wealthiness is matched by generosity. This guy is not a miser. He's a giver. He deals generously and lends. Verse 5. He distributes freely. He gives to the poor. Verse 9. He's gracious, merciful, and righteous. So we have blessed family. We have blessed wealth. Again, if you got blessed wealth, you might not have that much. But then things don't fall apart so easily either. I've noticed that. It's not a question of comparison. We're always comparing ourselves with others. Don't do that. We're wealthy. We have enough for ourselves to give to somebody else. We're wealthy. Thank God for it. And see if your wealth doesn't increase because He knows He can trust you to be a conduit through which He can still give more to others. But the third blessing I'd like to park on for just a moment here is blessed stability. Look again at verses 4, 6, 7, and 8. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright a Verse 6a, for the righteous will never be moved. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his enemies. I've highlighted certain words here in this psalm of the ideal man, in this life of the ideal man, there is Darkness. There is bad news. There are things to be afraid of. And there are adversaries. This is not Disneyland. This is real life. We're not in heaven. Bad news and bad things happen. But for this man, it's not just darkness. Light arises in the darkness. Weeping may last for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. And for him, he's not afraid of bad news. It's originally why I was drawn to this psalm many years ago. The, the threat of bad news happening would rock me. And, and I read this psalm. I meditated on this psalm because I realized I needed more stability in my life. I was just so easily shaken and knocked off balance when something bad would happen. And then I'd be waiting for the other shoe to fall. You know what I mean? It's not how God wants us to live. For this man... His heart is firm. His heart is steady. His heart is fixed. His heart is established. And Why is it? Well, it's because of one little phrase found at the end of verse 7 that says it all. His heart is firm. He is trusting in the Lord. That little phrase says so much. The covenant-keeping God... The one whose promises never fail. That's who he's trusting in. Trust in the Lord is another way of saying fear the Lord. The fundamental question for all of us at every point along the way is, are you trusting God? Sometimes we say it in different ways. I was visiting someone in the hospital earlier this week, and I, I like to ask it this way, the question is it well with your soul? And you know what? Almost always, if I'm talking to a Christian, a little smile comes to their face. Say, yeah, you know, if I'm focusing on why I'm in the hospital here, no, it's not well. But when you talk about my soul, yeah, yeah. What, why do I do that? Because I want to draw their attention back to what is ultimately important. It's trusting in God. If you are, then your life will not be characterized by fear. It doesn't mean that there won't be times when you stumble Or get afraid. It happens to me. It happens to us all. The righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. So you take a piece of scripture, and I've said this to this church before, I know. I think you all need this. We need to hear it again and again. Find that little portion of scripture that has spoken to your heart before. Perhaps it's Psalm 23, perhaps it's Psalm 46. Perhaps it's a word of Jesus from the Gospels. Find that place. Perhaps it's something from Romans 8. I don't know. But you go there. You pray that. You meditate. Why? Because that is a lens or a channel through which we make connection with God. The words inspired by Him. The Holy Spirit is living in the words of Scripture. It resonates with our own spirit. And we find kind of a a lifeline for our soul. Trust in the Lord, my friends. You will all be going through various trials that will test you to the very depth of your being. Even as you get older, the challenges only get greater. We need Him every moment. We need Him. And finally, blessed memory. Reading through this psalm, The memory of the just is blessed. Blessed memory. I don't mean that he won't misplace his car keys. That's not what I'm talking about when I say blessed memory. It's not that you won't walk into a room and then... Now, why did I come in here? Some of you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, one day you will. No, we're talking about... How this person will be remembered. Not his memory, but how he will be remembered. How she will be remembered. Verse 6b. He will be remembered forever. And it will be a pleasant memory. Verse 3 and verse 9 says the same thing. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. That means his strength is exalted But they will be remembered. When a president leaves office, there's usually talk of his legacy. What mark has he made? What will he leave behind? Well, what about you? What will you be leaving behind? What kind of mark will you leave? How will you be remembered? When people get older, they think more about these things. Here's a question for you. How much do you remember about your parents? Probably a whole lot, especially if they're still alive. But what about your grandparents? How much do you remember about your grandparents? Maybe a fair bit. What about your great-grandparents? And you got two parents, four grandparents, got eight grandparents. You must know a lot about them, right? There's eight of them. Not me. I know the name of one of my great-grandparents. Besides that. Do you see my point? After a few generations, the great majority of us fade from the memory of the living. It's a melancholy thought, I admit. Isaac Watts wrote a beautiful hymn from Psalm 90. And some of the words go like this, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies. At the opening day. You're asleep. You're dreaming. You have a vivid dream. You wake up. And you can barely remember it. And then it's gone. Is that what we're like? Is that what we're destined for? It would be nice to be remembered by my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. It would be nice. But what's much more important is that we be remembered by the Lord. The man who fears the Lord, verse 6, he will be remembered forever. It's not true about the wicked. The last verse says the, the wicked, they perish. They melt away. There's no remembrance of the wicked. But to be remembered by the Lord. Oh, that's a great blessing. To be remembered, not to be forgotten. There's an amazing passage of Scripture in Malachi chapter 3 that touches on this. I hope we have it up there. Yeah. Then those who feared the Lord. Notice that. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention. "...and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name." "...they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession... And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. That is fellowship, my friends. That is the church. That is one of the reasons we are together in this thing called the church to speak with one another of his glory and for the edification of each other. It's amazing. But this is another amazing statement. The Lord paid attention and heard them. That should fill us with hope and also with again godly fear. Just what are our words like as we speak to one another? Are they seasoned with salt? Are they gracious? Are they upbuilding? Do we think before we speak? Or do we just speak? Well, the Lord is paying attention. He heard them. God is paying attention to our conversations. And then a book. A book was prepared. The book of remembrance. Is this the book of life? Could very well be. And then this beautiful line, They shall be mine, says the Lord, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. That's an interesting little phrase, my treasured possession. You see it a few times in Scripture. God's people are his treasured possession. In ancient times, a king would have access to all the wealth in the kingdom, of course, but then he would have his private stash. And that was this term here, his treasured possession. The best of the jewels. Maybe you have a little box of memories at home. I know I do with little things, a silver dollar that my grandmother gave me and things like that. Those are my treasured possessions. You know, if I lose a few bucks here or there, but if something happened to that little box. When my kids got married, I tried to prepare a little box for each of them of just little things like that. Just that treasured. Well, the Lord says that we will be His treasure. What does that mean? It means He remembers He remembers us. We don't want to be forgotten. Do you want to be remembered in the most important way? Then fear the Lord and greatly delight in His commandments. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And one more thing before we close. Jesus, where is He in all this? If all Scripture finds its fulfillment in Him, where is Jesus in all this? That's where Psalms 110 through 112 hang together beautifully. The greater son of David, whom David refers to prophetically as his Lord, is nothing less than our Lord Jesus Christ. And all Scripture finds its fulfillment in him. He actually is the ideal man. He is the blessed man. He is what we as far as humanity is concerned, what we all aspire to. His humanity set for us the goal and the desire of all our humanity should be. He is wealthy. He is generous. He is righteous. He is stable. He's a rock in the midst of a rushing stream. And His relationship with His heavenly Father even through trial, especially through trial, perfectly demonstrates the fear of the Lord. To hear him is to hear wisdom. In him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To know him is to be wise. And wise men still seek him. Let's pray.